0: Welcome to Word Fortress Podcast. This is your host, Justin Golding, and today we are lucky to have a special guest with us, author Chuck Greaves, writer of the award winning McTaggart Legal Mystery Series. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: Our other guest today is the writer of the historical true crime fiction books of *Hard Twisted and Tom and Lucky. His latest book, Church of the Graveyard Saints, is due out in September of this year. Please welcome C. Joseph Greaves.
1: <laughs> also happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: of course, that is our little joke. Uh, they are the same man, uh, the same author but with two separate names. So let's let's start with that first question. Uh, why the two different names?
1: Well, that, that question takes me back to uh, how I first broke into publishing, interestingly enough, because when I sold my initial book to St. Martin's Press in, let's see, uh, 2012, I published it as Chuck Graves. That was the first Jack McTaggart mystery novel. It was called Hush Money. Um, Shortly thereafter I sold my second book uh, to uh, Bloomsbury and because it was a radically different book, this was a book called Hard Twisted, radically different from Hush Money, uh, they were afraid of reader confusion Uh, so they suggested that I use a a pen name and I didn't want to... my fear was that if the mystery series uh, didn't take off and the, the literary fiction did I'd be Joe Schwartz the rest of my life, <laughs> so I didn't want to do that. So we compromised with a variant of my name. So we agreed to do Chuck Greaves for the mystery series, and I chose C. Joseph Greaves for the uh, the other fiction.
0: Right, right. So this was a, uh, a business decision made with the publishers and your agent. And yeah,
1: it was imposed upon me. I, I'd, I'd rather just go with one name, but it's worked out. So right. yeah, no, no complaints.
0: Right, which which really gives an interesting moment, uh, also uh, with. It's just a unique story of writing two different books, and we're going to talk about these books in in, more depth in a moment. But you had this experience of writing two books that were so completely different. And I'm going to say, it's not just the the first-person narrative versus the third-person narrative and things like this, and I said, we're going to get deeper. But it really lends itself to how did you go out into the world, you know, because people say, well, you've got to find an agent who does this, or you've got to find a publisher that does this, and you went and wrote two books that are are completely separate and different. So what was that journey like?
1: Well, let's see, you know, they say you should write what you know, obviously. That's the first piece of advice you get when you you enter the publishing world. And so when I retired from practice, which I did in, in 2006, and I moved to Santa Fe to become a writer. Um, I thought the first thing I should do is try to write what I know. So I wrote a, a book about a, a young lawyer in, from Pasadena, California, which is exactly what I was. Uh, so it's, it's very autobiographical, I suppose. Um, so I wrote what I knew. Uh, and uh, it took me about two years to, to write the book that would become Hush Money. I then did what all brand new authors do, which is I tried to find an agent, and I started sending out inquiry letters to to a variety of agents and receiving uh, as many uh, rejection letters back in in the mail. So I followed a second piece of advice that that is often given to new writers, which is, while you're waiting uh, to find your agents, write your next book. So I I wrote uh, a second book, and bo- that book has a different origin story that we can talk about, but you're right, it's a very radically different book. Hush Money is a, a, is a breezy first-person mystery, very plot-driven. Um, Hard Twisted is a very atmospheric, third-person, true-crime story, um, very much in the Cormac McCarthy mode, if I, can, if I can be so presumptuous as to say that. Um, and so by the time I'd written both books... Uh, They were radically different books. I didn't know which book was going to sell first, or if either would sell, obviously. At that point, I'd been writing, it was now 2010, I'd been writing for four years, basically, and hadn't had a break, didn't have an agent, didn't have an editor, and my wife basically said to me, you're not going to write a third book unless you sell one of the first two. Why is it wonderful? Yeah, I know, exactly. (laughs) They keep you on track. So, um, what I did at that point is... Uh, I entered two different contests. This is a bit of a story, so bear with me. I entered two different contests. The Tony Hillerman conference, which used to be in Albuquerque, had a a, a writing contest where you submitted your novel and if you won, you won the Tony Hillerman prize, which came with a $10,000 guaranteed contract with St. Martin's Press. So I entered Hush Money in that contest. The contest was for Western uh, novels, but if you read the if you if you if you dug down into the definition of Western, it included Los Angeles. So right. I figured I qualified for that.
0: The, li- the legal aspect of worked out for you again. Now. Read the small yeah.
1: print. <laughs> exactly. So I entered Hush Money in that contest. At about the same time, I entered it in another contest here in Albuquerque. It was the Southwest Writers International Writing Contest. Now Southwest Writers is a wonderful group here in Albuquerque. Uh, They still exist, they have over 300 members, but they no longer run this contest. But at the time it was a big contest. There were 680 entries the year that I entered uh, the Southwest Writers uh, contest. And I entered both books in that contest because the way that contest worked was you submitted your first, I think, 50 pages of each book and they had 16 different categories you could enter in and one was uh, mystery fiction and one was historical. So I did Hush Money in the mystery fiction, and hard-twisted in the historical fiction category. Well, they notify you if you're a top three finalist. So fast forward several months later, I got an email saying, congratulations, your your book, Hush Money, is a top three finalist in the mystery uh, category. And then about two days later, I got a thing saying, congratulations, your novel, hard-twisted, is a finalist for the historical wow. uh, thing. And they had a dinner uh, banquet. So, I went to the dinner bank. It was funny because I had a friend of mine out from l a and, and the he my wife and I and he and his wife the four of us went to this this banquet not knowing what to expect and we got there. It was a big deal. They were Asians from New York it was about two hundred people there, and they did it sort of like the academy awards they 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 they'd, they'd announced who the finalists were and then they'd announced the winner in each of these sixteen categories right. and they were all blind judged by the way right so uh, no judges knew who they were dealing with or if it was the same person or what have you. So, long story short, uh, Hush Money won the mystery and Hard Twisted won the historical. Then they had an overall grand prize where the the sixteen finalists were were judged by a a new uh, judge, again anonymously, to pick an overall winner and and that winner received what they call a Storyteller Award. Well, in her statement uh, the judge, uh, a woman named Betsy James, said this was a toss-up between these two uh, two manuscripts that, that were almost equal, but I, I, I decided on uh, Hush Money. So Hush Money won. And it wasn't until later that I found out that the other one was hard twisted. <laughs> so basically, I, I, I claimed that out of 680 entries, I came in first and second. That's not technically true, but I claimed that anyway. But um, that was a big break for me. So So once that happened, I had both books out on submission to various agents in New York. So I kind of went back to my computer the next day and, and sent emails and said, oh, by the way, the book that you have just won the Southwest Writers Storyteller Award. So I had this experience. I was sitting at my computer one day polishing, hard twisted, the second book, which was still not final, uh, when the phone rang, and I picked it up, and it was a woman named Antonella Ainarino from the David Black Agency in New York, and she said she wanted to represent me, which was like, The phone call you're you're waiting for—I was waiting for for the last four years. So I was elated. Obviously, so I'm on the phone with her, and I kid you not, on my computer an email pops up from another agent in New York saying agency contract attached. So within the course of five minutes, (laughs) (laughs) I had I had multiple agent offers after four years of nothing. So that was that was my epiphany moment, uh, breaking into publishing. Okay. Um, so I signed with Antonella, the David Black agency, and um, she shopped uh, both novels around. While she was doing that, I heard back from the other contest, which was a Tony Hillerman contest, and I got a call from Peter Joseph, who was then the uh, the editor at St. Martin's who was running the contest, and he said, Chuck, you didn't win, but we still want to publish your book, which was great. I later found out that that my manuscript for Hush Money was given to Craig Johnson. Craig Johnson writes the Walt Longmire mysteries, very, very popular, uh, and a very excellent writer. And I later found out from talking to him that he um, read it and, and told Peter, if this guy doesn't win, you should still publish him, basically, which was which was nice to find out. So long story short, we sold Hush Money and a two-book deal to St. Martin's, uh, and then about six weeks later, we sold Hard Twisted to Bloomsbury, and I was off and running.
0: That's a good day. A yeah. week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's important, as you said, as you go through this, to say that um, the belief to do make this decision, and secondly, the journey of four years of, of writing and submitting and sending, sending out, it, it wasn't an overnight success.
1: Yeah. Uh, it was not. And you know, I've yet to meet a writer who doesn't have a, a great rejection story. They all do. And I cite right. a lot of different examples. My favorite example is uh, Harper Lee. Mm-hmm. who wrote what is arguably the greatest American novel ever written yeah. uh, and can you believe that ten different publishers read The Kill a Mockingbird and passed on it? So that'll give you an idea.
0: Well it's understandable in some ways. I, I agree. It's, it's, it's definitely in the top five American you know, novels of all time. And, but the topics the subject matter within it, uh, America has always been nervous about race. Right. It still is to this day. Right. So to have that right out there
1: but, but, you know, I've got uh, friends in the writing community now who have great stories, like uh, Jonathan Evison who's a very dear friend of mine, a uh, very successful author, uh, he, he, he literally buried in his backyard eight different manuscripts <laughs> before he sold his ninth. Did he have a
0: ceremony for that? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't Hopefully know. with a bottle of whiskey or something. <laughs>
1: I don't know, but he's, but he's had a series of, of wonderful bestsellers. So.
0: Right. Well, let's let's jump into a uh, couple of the books we've mentioned. Hard. Uh, Twi- I'd like to start with Hard Twisted. And the, the first question, you know, uh, what made you believe that you could write a third-person narrative from a 13-year-old girl's perspective? <laughs> I suppose that was a
1: pretty <laughs> audacious decision. Uh, what brought me to the project was the fact that it was a 13-year-old girl who would be the uh, point-of-view character. Uh, there's a backstory to the to the um, to the book, as you probably know if you right. read my my website. Yep. Uh, In 1993, while I was practicing law in L.A., my wife and I came to uh, Southeastern Utah uh, for Thanksgiving holiday, and uh, we met some friends of ours from Colorado there, and we stayed at a very remote bed and breakfast in a place called the Valley of the Gods uh, in the Red Rock Canyon country of uh, Southeastern Utah. And we went hiking uh, one day in a place called John's Canyon, which is the back of beyond. And we, it started the snow. And as it was November, so we, were, we were walking back to the car as the snow was falling. And it was one of those hushed, uh, muffled moments when the snow first starts to fall. And we literally stumbled upon two human skulls on the ground. And I kid you not, we bent over and picked them up off the ground. And a thunderclap rolled down the canyon in the snow, which is unusual. And it shook the ground under our feet and it was like we looked at each other and said, wow. Right. Uh, So, I mean, that was my wow moment. So we we went back to the bed and breakfast where we were staying. We reported what we'd found. Uh, We were told we should go talk to this woman who ran the trading post in Mexican Hat, Utah, because she was an area historian and avid hiker and and knew the whole history of the region, Uh, and report what we'd found, and we told her that, and she said, oh, you're not the first people to find those skulls. She said. I believe they're connected to a notorious double murder that happened here in 1935. And she had written a little uh, area historical book, uh, self-published, called Looking Back Around the Hat. Her name was Doris Valley. And uh, in in her little book, she had a three-page chapter about this double murder in, in John's Canyon. And we were fascinated by that. So we went back to uh, L.A. and we were we, my wife and I, we had our curiosity peak, so we started doing some investigation. And this is really before you know Google or anything like that, so investigation involved writing a letter to a private eye in Texas to ask him to go to the courthouse and copy some files for us, that kind of thing. And over the course of about 15 years, we amassed a, a big file about this case because it fascinated us. So here's the story chronologically. In 1934, there was a homeless man and his 13-year-old daughter living by the side of the road Uh, in Dust Bowl, Oklahoma, in the Depression. And they're befriended by this charismatic 36-year-old drifter from Texas who'd just been released from the federal penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas, unbeknownst to the father and daughter. And he befriends them, lures them back to Texas, where he kills the father and kidnaps the 13-year-old girl. So the, the, the guy's name is Clint Palmer, and he's a sociopath, a psychopath. And he's got this 13-year-old girl with him. And he takes her on a one-year crime and killing spree across the American Southwest. And they end up back in Texas, where, uh, while they were on the road, they discovered the body of the father, uh, which was now a skeleton. Uh, They didn't know who it was. So they put the skeleton on display in the courthouse at Sulphur Springs, Texas. And when they finally caught uh, Clint Palmer and tried him, it was called the skeleton murder trial for that reason. And the 13 year old girl who was now 14, her name was Lottie Garrett. She was a star witness who testified against him in the trial. They convicted him, and then they sent Lottie to, um, to reform school till age 21 for associating with a known criminal, an amazing uh, right. piece of you know American jurisprudence circa 1935. But the whole story was harrowing. And what, what, what appealed to me during that hike was that the area where we were where we found the skulls, which, by the way, were were, not, were Native American skulls. Right. Uh, whether they were connected to that murder or not is, is, is problematic. But windswept, beautiful, but um, just a harsh landscape. And it was snowing, it was cold. And I thought, can you imagine being a 13-year-old girl living out here with a captive, essentially, in a dugout? Now, a dugout is a, a trench in the ground with a roof over it, and that's where they were wow. living, in a dugout. They were tending sheep for this guy named uh, Harry Goulding, who ran a trading post in in Monument Valley. And she became pregnant during this ordeal. She gave birth to a boy that lived only seven days. So it was the most horrific situation. And I said, somebody should write a book about this from this girl's point of view. Uh, So I had all those materials. So after writing Hush Money and getting that off my chest and, and what I thought would be a more commercial novel, I wrote kind of the novel that I really wanted to write, which was more substantive. Uh, and that was hard twisted.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting uh, when reading Hard Twisted. It was, uh, it's it's Depression Era America, but you don't talk about it. But it's so it seeps into every pore of the characters and every decision they make. Is it Dillard uh, Garrett, the father, he knows that he's somewhat aware that Clint is not a good character, but he's hungry. Right. He has no job prospects. Right. He, he's he's living in a ditch with his daughter. At no point you say this is depression era. You know nothing. But you understand that the decisions made uh, are often against people's uh, best decisions. Be, be, but but they have no options. And I I found that interesting with your work. You know because it's such a strong moment in American history. But you didn't lose focus about keeping her on the characters, especially the girl. I mean, she's on, I, I just want to say that she's, she's on the side of the road. Clint comes along. And the fact, she's on the side of the road. A 13-year-old girl, and her father's gone off to find some work. And she's on the side of the road. This is how he has access it with her to begin with. And i just, interesting for you, as, as, as an author, the choices you made of showing... The desperation, without you know, without saying it, saying it, yeah. you know, yeah. Uh, an interesting uh,
1: aspect of the book that may not be apparent uh, is that I think nowhere in the book do I say she thought. Right. Everything that you everything that you might think suppose that she's thinking, uh, you have to infer from uh, what she says and what she does. And that's a very, uh, very Cormac mccarthy uh, uh element of the book. So, yeah, I, 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 I try not to get into her head, but I try to show the reader through things that happen to her, things that she does and things that she says, what's going on in her head.
0: Right. Well, I think the clear indication of this is, is towards the end when law enforcement is questioning her and asking her simply, why didn't you run away? Why didn't you just leave? Why didn't you call for help? And I think her line is, you don't know who he is, you don't know who I am, you you, you know. And and to that point, I think he did an amazing job of showing how the character, not just the character, but the, the fictional story you created, but the historical character of how he isolated this woman, how it confused her, and how he made control over her.
1: And one thing I, I, I think I, I did, at least uh, I, I tried to do, was to make Clint uh, not just an, uh, a, a, uh, a one-dimensional evil monster, Clint is actually charming. And, and the fact that he's charming is how he managed to get Lottie in the first place. It's how he managed to do the same thing to, to several other young girls previously, which is why he was in, in prison. Um, he was a charmer. Uh, He was a little guy. He was like 5 foot 6, weighed 130 pounds or something like that. He had size 7 shoes, I think it was, or size 6 shoes. I got that from the prison records. He had no teeth. He was syphletic. He had uh, had, uh, dentures. uh, But he was a good-looking little guy, and he was charming as hell. And that's how he managed to inculcate himself into these young girls' lives. And um, I think he comes off on the page as being charming in places frightening in other places, but, but charming. But, yeah. And that was what I was trying for, anyway.
0: Well, I think you succeeded, because uh, he's a storyteller, he's a charmer, and you, you get the sense that uh, you understand. You're not sitting there when you're reading the book going, well, why would they get in the car with him, or why would they do this? Or would they, you, you would... And everybody knows that type of person, where maybe they're fun to go out for a weekend, the last weekend, but it's not good to stick around with them too long.
1: We, ha- we have a term for that now, we call it the Stockholm Syndrome, the idea that a person who's, who's a captive often comes to identify with their captors. That concept obviously didn't exist in, in 1934, 35, Dust Bowl, Oklahoma or Texas. Right. Uh, so, uh, the fact that the authorities there would imprison her, are clearly the victim in this scenario, yes, uh, for the crimes, is shocking, except if you think about it, by the time they captured Lottie and um, and Clint, Lottie at that point was an orphan because her mother had died earlier, before the story begins. Her father was killed by, by Clint. Uh, she had no family except an uncle. Right. And so, um, in a sense, maybe they were doing her a favor by putting her in a, in a home until age 21.
0: A roof, food. Exactly. Roof. Exactly. exactly. Safety, maybe. Yeah. Which is interesting, uh, you know, with the Uncle Mac. It's not answered. it doesn't have to be answered, but it's the thing of. I often wondered why did the father leave? Because the, obviously the Uncle Mac showed up to help her. Like, why did he leave the brother's farm?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Uh, there, there, there's. These are all real people, okay. Right. Um, and he did. Ha- she did have an Uncle Mac. It's never. It was never clear to me from the research I could do whether uh, Dillard Garrett. He had a problem of some sort, obviously. He he'd left his wife and family. Mm -hmm. His wife died when when Lottie was three. And when Lottie died, she was sent to live with her Uncle Mac, not with her father. Ah. So why was that? So the father was either in jail or was in trouble. There were some references to the fact that he may have been a bootlegger, so maybe he was on the run. Uh, It wasn't clear. So he didn't didn't regain custody of his daughter until she was... uh, 12, I think, or 13. Right. Uh, so uh, they were only recently being reunited when these events began.
0: Interesting. So, well, talking about Clint as well, one of the aspects that was interesting, especially for this day and age, was the non-religious aspect that came across strongly in the book.
1: That was probably me projecting a little bit. I mean, you, you've got to create characters and, and make them three-dimensional characters. And when you have a character like uh, uh, Clint or like uh, Dillard Garrett Clint you knew more about because he had a record and, and there were prison records and there were uh, hospital records and things like that. Dillard was pretty much a blank slate to me I could have made him anything I wanted. I made him kind of a religious fanatic because I thought that that sort of fit the situation a little bit and it, it sort of
0: um, there's a very powerful scene that he has with his daughter right exactly after she was nearly uh, raped right. Uh, you know, right. talk about time and day where the, the blame was squarely put on her shoulders. Exactly,
1: yeah. exactly. So uh, obviously there's, there's, some, there's a fictional element to it, which is why it wasn't a nonfiction book. Mm. I could have written that book as nonfiction, by the way. Um, right. In fact, uh, a, a writer came along uh, recently and, and, and wrote that story as non-fiction. Hmm. Um, uh, but uh, he did more research than I did, um, uh, a little bit more. Uh, but I did quite a bit of research for that book. I mean, we went to, I went to Texas, I went to the courthouse, I went to the court records. Uh, we got the prison records, including his medical records, uh, from Leavenworth. We got his records from um, from Huntsville Prison in Texas, where he eventually died. He died in the 1960s. Uh, yeah,
0: 69, yeah. I think. It, yeah, uh, yeah.
1: yeah, which is, which is astounding. Yeah. Because the book, you feel like you're you're so far away. You're in the 30s, people are on horseback. You know, it's, right. it's rural. And here he dies uh, in the same year as uh, the Jets won the 1969 Super Bowl, you know, so it's like, wow. <laughs> yeah. This
0: is not so far, yeah, which was which brings me to an instant fact, I think you did this superbly, the the time, the language, the, 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 the kind of viewpoints of this, you know, and it's kind of like there's language in there that some people might find offensive for modern day, but I think what's superb is that you were brave enough to put it in there because otherwise, it, it would be inauthentic uh, and and that was the same thing about attitudes towards this minor this 13-year-old girl Have uh, a father's attitude towards her. It's your fault for enticing seducing even uh, when she's put in the um, When the lawyer is questioning her about Do you use your womanly wiles uh, <coughs> Excuse me and talk about that because historically I mean Obviously, we thank goodness we've progressively moved forward through life and different things. Even the the couple of times when African Americans are depicted, they they are, you know, especially in in the South type thing, are are still more or less slaves, even though they've been freed. Talk about uh, that going into this understanding that this uh, is a history that doesn't always reflect positively, right? Well.
1: You know, one um, challenge to writing a story like this is you're writing, you're trying to sound authentic Mm -hmm. in writing about the way people thought and spoke and behaved in uh, 1934 East Texas. So, how do you find that out? Well, turns out there are people who lived in 35 East Texas who wrote books. Okay? There was a wonderful book, I think his name was Bill Owens, a book called This Stubborn Soil. Uh, which was a, a memoir about a guy who grew up in that, in that time and place. And I read that book just for atmosphere, just to, just to s- soak up how people talked right. uh, and the expressions they used and the way they thought in that era. And I definitely brought that to bear in, in that part of the book. Similarly, um, Harry Goulding, there, there was a wonderful book written about him called Tall Sheep uh, by a man named Moon. And it was basically an extended interview with Harry Goulding. Harry Goulding is something of a famous guy only because he ran this trading post in Monument Valley. And shortly after the events in the book, he did something extraordinary. Harry Goulding brought a bunch of photographs he had of Monument Valley. And he he got in his truck and he drove to Hollywood. And he went to one of the studios. And he asked to to see uh, somebody who was in charge of making movies. And they made him sit in the lobby. He wouldn't leave. And finally some guy came and to throw him out and and he and he said, I just wanted to show somebody these pictures. And he had all these beautiful pictures of Monument Valley. And they and the guy said, Well, well come on in here. Well, come on. And they introduced him to John Ford, who was planning to write a movie, uh, write a, a film a Western. And so as a result of that meeting, uh, John Ford came to Monument Valley and filmed stagecoach in nineteen thirty wow. what,
0: nineteen thirty
1: nine. John Wayne's big moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so Harry Goulding it was kind of a famous character because he brought Hollywood to, to Monument Valley, and, and there've been you know dozens of films made in money. It's iconic now, right? But but it was it was it was his idea to do it, right? Um, so there've been books written about him, and th- and this one book was called Tall Sheep, and it was a a, a question and answer format, and it was just long anecdotes because he was a loquacious guy. There were these long anecdotes about um, what it was like to. Live in, in Monument Valley, starting in the 19 like 25 or something like that. He started there, uh, and it was fascinating. Right. But he's also dealing with the Navajos, right. And he's dealing with uh, other Native American tribes in the area, and you know he calls them Navies, the Navies. Okay. So I use that. You know, I, you, yeah. know you wouldn't say the Navies today. No. But but that's how people talked then, and and the I gleaned that from uh, from doing the research basically. So, yeah, so you, you apply the research. If you're going to write a book that's authentic to the time, you have to write, uh, you have to have characters talking the way they would have talked at the time. It's as simple as that.
0: Absolutely. And it's interesting. Even now, like, uh, I get told, I grew up with the idea of cowboy and Indians. And now, of course, it's Native American. It's just simple changes because it's the Christopher Columbus thing, thinking you to going to India. Things we don't even think about, even for myself, generationally, it's like, oh, I have to change that now, even though I grew up with right. that term my entire life. I think. But yeah, and, and the other aspect about historical accuracy, uh, 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 authentic aspects of it, if you didn't do that, it would pull you out. If it was too modern, even though some of the words sometimes can be jarring, it pulled you deeper instead of pushing you out, which is...
1: A- absolutely. We talked about this. Uh, we're here in Albuquerque now because I'm down here. I taught at a uh, at a writer's conference yesterday. And in the course of... of Uh, hearing other people speak during the day uh, I had a I had a a lunch conversation with uh, James McGrath Morris who's a uh, biographer Uh, and we were talking about this idea of authenticity and and getting things getting details right and the one thing I said was you know I'm not a historian I'm not a, a biographer by any means but in writing a book like Hard Twisted you came across these issues all the time like like did jars have screw caps in 1935 did tents have zippers in 1935? Okay. Right. So you had to you had to get the answer because it had to be authentic. Right. So that's that's part of the process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting you talking about Goulding as well in Utah uh, when you started this whole topic. You talked about the skulls that you found. Then I think there's a crime that takes place, as you said, that goes full circle about a plot moment of how Clint and Lottie end up taking care of the sheep.
1: Right. And 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 that that is a bit of um, it's not clear that that ever happened, okay? Right. But, but Doris Valley said that the, the way that, in her, she'd heard this, I don't know how, where she'd heard this, she'd heard that the way that uh, Clint Palmer got the job from Harry Goulding was because Harry had two Navajo um, sheep herders working for him. And uh, Clint said, well, let me go check on your sheep. And he came back and said, hey, your sheep are abandoned. There, there's no, there's nobody there. And and, and that's how sh- she speculates that the two skulls came to be in John's Canyon.
0: Right, right. But I love how you go full circle there. That. that was the beginning, and and, and and you put that into the story, which right. is at least two-thirds through at that point, and almost the beginning of the end right. for, for Clint, which, you know... Uh, even though those two Navajo Indians didn't get justice, so to speak. You know, they kind of did in, in, the, in the whole scope of things. Um, one of the aspects I was, I was looking at is that how tough were some of the scenes? When you write certain scenes, I'm thinking of Lottie in particular, uh, I think you did it with great class, you know, it's basically a rape scene by Clint. He's got a folina power, and he's kind of being grooming her, so it's not overtly violent. But you know how tough is that to show this, from her viewpoint as well, the, 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 the snare and capture and, and, and manipulation of this young girl?
1: As part of the research that I did, when I was doing the research for this book, the Holy Grail was trying to find Lottie Garrett because she might still be alive. I mean, right. I, I was doing this research in in the, the mid 1990s. She was 13 years old in in 1935, so you can do the math. She could have very well have been alive. Yes. Uh, and it turns out she wasn't, but 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 not by much. Oh. Okay. When when I eventually found her, I wrote the book not knowing if she was alive or dead. Right. But before the book was published, I found out that she was dead, and I found out. Information about her on Ancestry.com, as it turns out, (laughs) which didn't exist, but you know, uh, and Ancestry.com told me that she had married at age 21. She'd had a son named Dillard, Ah. and she'd lived into her—I forget if it was her 80s or—but she lived a full life. Uh, I contacted her son Dillard. I communicated extensively by email with his wife. Uh, I, in fact, sent some materials to them that they didn't have and they gave me some information. At that point the book was written, though. It was not yet published, though, so I could make a couple tweaks. And another thing that I found later in the game was I found two witness statements that Lottie gave uh, while she was in Texas, before the trial. One was given to the authorities from Utah who'd come down to interview her about the double murder in Johns Canyon. And one was given to the authorities in Texas about her father's murder. Uh, and they, they were just typewritten statements that she gave to the grand jury. Like I say, the book was written when, the, the first draft of the book was written when I came upon those statements. I found them in, in a, uh, a museum in Salt Lake City, of all places. Right. And to tell you the truth, they changed the narrative a little bit. I'd written the book, but the story that she was telling was a little bit different. Right. So, as best I could, I, I tweaked the story to fit as best I could her witness statement without rewriting the whole book. And one thing that she described in that statement was the first time that, that Clint had taken advantage of her in a motel room in Texas. And so I was able to work that into the story late in the, in the manuscript. Uh, so that was probably one of the last scenes I wrote in the whole book.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, because it's, it's such an important moment because in the court case, they tried to imply that she's a common law wife.
1: Right. Which was true because if she if she was his wife, she couldn't have testified against him. Exactly, that was the thing. So the defense is trying to establish that they're married, right? Uh, And and that was an issue in the case. Yeah,
0: and in the book you have what seem like court proceedings. Are they actual court proceedings? Are they fictitious?
1: Uh, Various chapters in the book begin with transcripts uh, from the trial. They're completely fictitious.
0: Okay. They're very well written. I I had to ask. They didn't know. Um,
1: And the reason they're fictitious is because although there's a clerk's record on appeal, meaning all the pleadings are in the file and and all the motions and whatnot are in the file, uh, there's no reporter's transcript from the trial. But what I did have access to was there was a daily newspaper that was published in the area uh, in Greenville, Texas, that reported on the trial every day. And okay. so they would summarize the day's proceedings, and that's how I, I could tell what was happening each day during
0: the course of the trial. Because you have dates in there as yeah. well when yeah, things yeah. happen. Um, so certain books can get very grisly, and there was every—you could have, but you chose not to. Like as even as the, the thing of that Dillard's—you do say that Dillard's father's head was decapitated. Um, but you chose not to show those moments.
1: Yeah, no, I, I didn't want to be hurt. I don't, I don't think I have that in me. I don't think I could, could write that, honestly. So right. I, I, I take you up to the edge and don't show you the actual, the actual deed.
0: Which, which I liked because yeah. it, it allowed me to, cause to, uh, you know when reading those type of books, I have to put them down and walk away. And that's to me, is another, you know, this cardinal sin, don't push me out of the story. Whereas the way you wrote it, I'm like, I, okay, these are horrible things happening. Right.
1: Well, I'll tell you a story jumping ahead. You know, after the book came out, um, I have an agent at, 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 at CAA in Los Angeles who um, was trying to sell it as a movie, obviously. And, and quite a, a number of people looked at it. Uh, I know Brad Pitt looked at it. I know um, George Clooney looked at it. Um, and it, it never did sell. And, and, and he told me early on, he said, uh, you know, a book about a 13-year-old girl who gets raped is a hard sell. Yes. And it's and a it, liter
0: thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. well, it's, it's
1: yeah. yeah. But it's worse. It's worse, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know. Yeah,
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, that's.
1: So, uh, w- w- what, what may have been the book's strength in one sense was actually worked against it in, in that sense.
0: Right. I think that uh, for me, the three elements that I took away from the book, and we'll uh, wrap it up and move on to uh, Hush Money, um, is, is very simply the power of the, the girl's voice, Lottie's voice second part of it is the, the time period, the American historical moment. And something I'd like to talk about right now is the landscape. And, and your descriptive of, of the landscape and the terrain reminded me greatly of Hemingway, for whom the bell tolls, he describes Spain when he's in the mountains. It, it really reminds me of that desolation and the cold and the and, and landscape that really affects the character. What a
1: cheerful book this must be, <laughs> huh? It's a wonderful <laughs> book.
0: No, no, it's, it's an absolutely... Well, let, but before you add to the landscape, one, the thing that I'd say that is so uplifting about this book is the survival of the human spirit, the strength of Lottie. that she goes through this entire thing, and at no point is she defeated, and I love what you do when she faces it in the court, where the lawyer says, don't look at him, but the first thing she does, she looks at his grinning face. Mm-hmm and, and locks oh, him down
1: I'm so glad you said that because I, I really tried for a redemptive note at the end and right. I, and, and, I, and I, I'm glad it came you through did. yeah but going back to the landscape question I, when I first saw southeastern Utah in 1993 uh, I was I was enamored of it that's why I live there now and I, I live in Red Rock country now because I fell in love with it uh, and um, I'd never seen anything like that in my life and I tried to capture that uh, the awe the awe that I experienced when I first saw it
0: Right. Well, thank you for talking about that interesting jump to Hush Money, which is a first-person narrative. Um, and the main character is, is Jack McTaggart. What I love about this book is if you're going to do the first person, you have to fall in love Absolutely. with that character.
1: Lawrence Block wrote a wonderful book called Writing the Novel, and I recommend it to a lot of new writers. I, I, it's, a, it's a great resource. But he talks about the difference between first person and the third person. And basically first person creates intimacy and third person gives the author versatility. That's how I describe it. And the intimacy, he describes, uh, Block says, a first person narrator, it, it's as though the character is walking down the street with you holding your arm and telling you a story. Yes. And, and and that's what first person narration should do. Right. And that's what I tried for in, in, in Hush Money.
0: Oh, you did, because, you know, we're, we're step by step with him as he, we know what he knows, we react as he reacts. Exactly. And uh, we have Wh-
1: Which is why first-person narration lends itself so well to mystery fiction. Yes. Because the detective is trying to figure things out along with the reader.
0: Exactly. Right. Yeah, and, and you are the sidekick, so hopefully the sidekick with the, the person, and uh, I think that, which, which was interesting. Uh, for me, with this character, was his humor, his toughness, which was fascinating, which led to his backstory. You you purposely created a guy from the street, right. in a sense. He's from the project, L.A. projects. He didn't go to the Ivy League school, and he's 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 fighting with the giants throughout the entire book. This character is taking on. The big medical insurance companies. He's taken on the Ivy League uh, trained. I was just wondering about that choice. Well, you know, uh,
1: if you're going to write uh, genre fiction like this, you, you've got to create. Um, you have to create barriers for your hero to overcome. You have to put obstacles in his way, and you have to up the ante continually throughout the narrative. That's what. That's what. That's what keeps the reader interested in the story. So yeah, J- Jack is kind of a fish out of water, he's kind of a blue collar guy in a, in a white shoe law firm, um, and he's, he's underestimated for that reason. Um, and he's incorruptible for that reason. Uh, he's, he, he's part of the Meilu, but he's, he's a step removed from it, and he can look at it with a jaundiced eye a little bit. I think that, that makes for a, a, a compelling narrator and, and a fun guy to, to, uh, to stay with. What I tried to do with all the Jack McTaggart books, is I tried to take Jack and put him into a, 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 a subculture, all right? Uh, so equestrian show jumping plays a big part of hush money, right. Right? Uh, which he knows nothing about. So he can look at it as an outsider and kind of make fun of it, right. even, even while he's moving through that milieu. Uh, I did the same thing in the second book with, with elective politics, a mm-hmm. book called Green-Eyed Lady. It involves a senatorial campaign. Right. Uh, and also involves uh, the modern art scene in Los Angeles, Okay, which is a, a fun thing to skew. Right. Um, and the third book is called The Last Air, H-E-I-R, The Last Air, and that book takes place in the wine country of Napa Valley. Right. So in each case, Jack is a fish out of water. Right. In each case, he's sort of Moving in a world where he's an outsider, he's um, he's from a different class altogether from the people he's dealing with, and that just creates a friction that I think works well for the.
0: I think so. I think uh, one of the lines that stood out to me straight away in Hush Money was uh, when he says about uh, his client whose horses died so suspiciously, and there's a huge insurance claim for millions, and uh, but he talks about it in the way he describes Sydney is uh, she got her money the old-fashioned way, she outlived her rich husband. Right. Which is, you know, <laughs> an, right. uh, as you said, an interesting viewpoint from the outside looking in at this extremely wealthy world. A-
1: and in a way, that, that's, that's the autobiographical part of the book. I mean, I, I grew up in Levittown, New York. I, you know, I was one of six kids. My father was a machine repairman. My mother was a housekeeper. You know, We didn't have anything, really, to speak of. We were a blue-collar family. Right. Um, and I ended up at a at a white shoe law firm in Pasadena where I was, you know, representing uh, some very wealthy people in very important matters. And um, in a sense, it's human nature, I suppose. Every once in a while, you step back and say, "What am I doing here?" You know, yes. you know. A- and I think Jack does the same thing.
0: I think so, and I think probably that's one of the reasons why I, can, I same thing. I grew up in a steel town, blue-collar, mm-hmm. similar type thing, and uh, generationally you know, going from the grandfather, the coal miner, upwards, you know. And, and I, I always say that the, the greatest joy of that journey, and I don't know if you agree with this, is that I can walk into any room and talk to any person because of the journey I've taken okay. from, from that beginnings. To to hear, right. and and so yes, and that's why again target comes across as very authentic. Though it's interesting with genres, while well, they talk about plot, and for Hushman you have two plot lines, which I find interesting. You have, and it begins with the murder of a horse, right. <laughs> which is kind of unique in itself. But but it truly begins with what I call, and I, I'm not going to label them A or B, but just because they're two very important plot lines. And when I look at that, you. It's kind of interesting, in a subtle way. You could say that you're fighting fighting somebody who is trying to commit another murder. It's a medical insurance company, refusing to give a life-saving operation to a client of yours, and you're fighting them to, to have them pay for it. So in a way, it's it's a murder. And I, when I was looking at it, murder right out there in public view, because you state if you don't, if they don't pay, this man's debt in three months. If you do the procedure. He's alive. So, uh, so uh, the question is, the the decision to make two plot lines. So they don't really interconnect that much, other than introduce some good characters like May um, uh, that 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 then does help you in all other areas. But there's two plot lines, and and as I said, it's it's gonna you know in a certain way, it's the institution doing a murder in clear sight. (laughs) Well, I think the reason for the two plot
1: lines is this. If you're going to write a story about a, a young lawyer uh, and you're just going to follow the one plot line, it's not realistic because young lawyers don't just spend all their time working on one case. Right. right. There, there are other things going on in their lives and you have to deal with that. So that's an opportunity to create a second narrative that even though it doesn't necessarily pay off in the end vis-a-vis the, the culmination of the book, it reveals character. Action reveals character. So. Yes. So uh, the, the things that Jack does and, and the stances he takes on behalf of his client tell you a lot about Jack, and hopefully they make you root for Jack, yes. uh, and, and, and that's why there's, a, there's that, that second plot line.
0: Well, I think that's the one that really clearly shows uh, he's willing to risk it all, fight the big guys, which is that entire medical health insurance company uh, situation with the lawyers they have representing it and um i guess his understanding of his client the sympathy and uh, empathy right. right as for his client and the fact that he does what most people want to do to power he stands right in its face and and confronts it which, which is uh, obviously a very appealing and,
1: and i'll tell you that as a trial lawyer i did a lot of plaintiff's personal interview work i did a lot of bad faith insurance work i did a lot of civil rights litigation so I, that kind of reflects the practice that I have, so, yeah. Right,
0: okay, so you get, and it, it comes across so well, the legal uh, aspect of it, because it's always interesting to learn something new as well. Uh, of course, you want to get lost in the story, but right. it's always, and of course, you, you did 25 years of research then, didn't you? <laughs> I I, uh,
1: well-paid research, <laughs> Well-paid <that>. research, exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I think that uh, to the, the character of Jack, he's not a loner. But he's alone, even though for most of the book he has a romantic interest with Tara. It's kind of you know interesting to find such a successful young man.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know the ending of that book. Uh, I, I've gotten a lot of feedback about the ending of that book. Right. A lot of people wanted Jack and Tara to, to remain together right, at the end of the book. Good, yeah. And, and I tell you, uh, the agent, the, the two agents, uh, read that book and 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 both said, why do you, you can't have them break up at the end? <laughs> in fact i'll tell you I'll tell you something I've never told anybody in the first draft of that book, which the first agent looked at. not only does Jack break up with Tara at the end, he gives Tara his dog Sam
0: no <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, and, and she said, "You cannot have him give away his dog. People are going to hate him." Right. And I say, "You're right about that. It's too much." But but I definitely wanted to have a a, a downbeat ending. I definitely wanted right. to have a downbeat Dana to the, to the story because I, it's kind of noirish for one yes. thing. Uh, and I kind of like that. It, it, things don't always end happily ever after. Right. Right. Exactly. So yeah. the ending the ending, even though he succeeds in everything he, he set out to do, it doesn't end well in certain respects for him.
0: Right. And I, I and I find that interesting that the way you ended it, um, it's Tara's choice. And you you laid the breadcrumbs in the story for why she didn't want to be with this high risk type of guy, right? Because of a fat, you know, not to give all the story away, but something that happened with her sister, right? But the other aspect to, as you said, action reveals character. In this, is that. The physicality of the man. Even though it doesn't always work out, I think he gets his shoulder dissipated with the horse thing. Mm-hmm. I think um, in some, some ways that's very blue collar, willing to climb fences, run down there, jump out of, yeah. physically get in people's faces, yeah. and, and stuff like that. Like well, I can say,
1: Jack is me, except that he's smarter, braver, and, and better looking. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I'm talking about
0: that, there's a definitely charm factor. Yeah. Uh, with, with the humor sure. that, that Jack has as yeah. well. He's yeah. charismatic. Yeah, he is, definitely. And what, the other aspect to it is that obviously women are drawn to him. It's never overtly said, is that, but it's it's kind of right. like events that happen. And I guess what, what really comes across is how comfortable he is in the presence of women. Mm-hmm. Like his, his best sidekick in the law firm is May Day, right. Right, a female, which it's never talked about. It's never discussed. He never says why. But that's his go-to person. Right. A person that he well,
1: I, I learned a valuable lesson in writing Hush Money, and and, and uh, it's a lesson that every uh, author in any genre should take to heart. You have to have a sidekick. Yeah. If you're going to write in the first person, especially, uh, you, you have to have your your character has to have somebody to talk to. Right. Uh, and uh, in large parts of the early part of the book, Jack is kind of going around on his own, and I, I learned very quickly, now he's got to have somebody there next to him to talk to. Right. Yeah, so that, that's that's how, Mayday May is his sidekick throughout the series, so even, I'm writing book four right now.
0: See, I didn't know that, but yeah. I, I identified it. Yeah. And, and,
1: and Mayday is right there with him. So, yeah, Yeah.
0: and I thought that's fantastic, because he's such a man's man, mm-hmm. that uh not to soften him but to had another perspective to add another a sounding board uh, so, yeah exactly yeah. you know to give another viewpoint and even in the in this book to give her the moment where she's the one who uh, identifies the murder weapon with the the, the insulin right or you know it's was it so she's not just
1: she, she's not just a, an adornment no right. no right yeah no yeah
0: She's important to the
1: plot, and you know I, I have a, f- a, a female agent, and uh, and, and she uh, very much pushes me to make sure that that she isn't an adornment, that, that she's not just uh, part of the furniture. Right. Yeah. yeah.
0: Say something now, because I need to move the plot forward. Yes. Right. Not yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah. She has a life. She has a backstory. Yeah. She has And in a lot
1: of ways, she, she's the smarter of the two. You know, right. she's the one. She's the level-headed one. She's the uh, they really the bright one. Right. And Jack's kind of more of the, the loose cannon, so...
0: Right. Yeah. Well, what I love about it, why I think also the gender thing is important in this aspect, is that Jack with an Ivy League psychic guy couldn't work there'd they, 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 be right. too much conflict, whereas this highly intelligent woman from a very, you know, privileged background, doctor father and all this type of stuff, well, that can work. Right. Because Jack isn't challenged... And she can grow because Jack has no problem with her right. flourishing.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: So, yeah. Very yeah. good.
1: Very very insightful. <laughs> 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 well, how it work. I'm just reading what you <laughs> put down on the page. That's, that's
0: where I got it from. But what's curious to me is that the first human murder doesn't happen. We suspect Russ. You know, once he disappears and everything. So maybe in the first third or something, but we don't know. No, till much later. And, right. of course, you, you hit the, 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 the second kind of one of the second most important thing in, in murder mystery type thing is why does this person want to solve it? And you give him two reasons. Obviously, he's his mentor, the guy who took him under his wing, mm-hmm. almost like a father to him. Uh, so, obviously, you want to find out who, why. But the other thing is you have a police officer who's trying to peg him for the murder, so I better work this out, otherwise I'm gonna be carried off in in chains. And to to the question I have there is, the decision to delay the murder, obviously we have the horse. (laughs) Right. Straight away. Well,
1: it's interesting you say that, because one problem the book had early on, when I, the first draft, again, this first novel I've ever tried to write, okay, and it came out way long. It came out to like one hundred and forty thousand words, whereas the final version was probably about one hundred and ten thousand words. So I had to cut almost a, a quarter of the book. Right. Um, once I started shopping it around, then I started to get feedback from agents who said, "You know, this is just too long. Right.
0: Um,
1: and the second problem is the murder happens too 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 long into the story.
0: Right.
1: So when I did the cutting, I did almost all the cutting from the first third of the book to move the murder. <laughs> You know, closer to the beginning <laughs> right. of the book, but it still happens a little bit late from, uh, compared to most books.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, it worked. I mean, uh, you know. Oh, it, it does. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, because, because there's two murders going on. There's two cases going on in parallel. Right. And they end up dovetailing. but So you have the one, ca- the one horse murder that brings you in, in the beginning. Right. And carries the book to the point that there's a human murder, which then dovetails right. the two together.
0: Right, and of course, the, the connection between the horse murder and the human there's a connection that, right. that happens and everything.
1: By the way, we're talking about a book that I wrote 10 years ago. So <laughs> I'm sitting here trying to remember the story. But <laughs> oh, I, tell you your, all about yeah, it. <laughs> you, you know it better than I do because you just read it. Yeah,
0: you just read it. But <laughs> I, I think that, uh, but what I loved about that, that's, that's the interesting thing. As you said, you could say that that's breaking a genre a rule, shall we say. But why I loved that was that, okay, I'm looking for it, I know it's coming. And I know all this information you're giving me. It's leading to well, and I, yeah. And as soon as, yeah. of course, the worry about him going missing, they couldn't reach him. I knew, right? Especially as I knew because you know Jack had just taken the incriminating evidence that affected right. his partner and the partner's son. I was like, oh, okay. I tell you what did catch me off guard, but I loved was the uh, medical science, home storyline and why by the horse. I thought it was going to be which was wonderful because I thought, okay, I got this, this is, this is an insurance fraud, blah, 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 people try trying to cover it up because they want to go to jail, and mm-hmm. things have gone wrong, but then it, it took a whole shift to a uh, medical science, and I just wanted to say as a plot point, that really opened it up, and, and it, because otherwise I, I worked it out on page 40. You know?
1: <laughs> okay. okay, good, 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 I'm glad to hear it.
0: Sounds good. So, the one last thing I, I'd like to ask all writers, is how many unpublished, and half-finished books did you do you have?
1: I'm probably unusual in the sense that I've finished every novel I've ever started and I've sold every novel I've ever finished.
0: Wow, so I want to touch you for luck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I've been fortunate in that regard. I don't have six manuscripts buried in my backyard like Jonathan Everson and I, and I don't have uh, two or three in a, in a file drawer somewhere like most authors I've met. Hush Money was the first book I ever tried to write.
0: So, there you have it. That's amazing. But, you know, the thing to add to that is, highly successful, highly educated man by the time you came. I'm saying, you know, it's not like you were a uh, scuba diver or something. You were a lawyer who used to the English language. And
1: and that's not, that's not uh, coincidental because, you know, as a lawyer or in any profession, you have to bring a certain discipline to bear in what you do. You're at your desk every morning at a certain time. You're working long hours. You're working weekends you're focused very intently on what you're doing and I think I took those disciplines with me when I sat down to become a writer I am the uh, I forget who said it but somebody said I, I only write when I'm inspired but I make it a point to be inspired every morning at nine o'clock <laughs> right. uh, and so every morning at nine o'clock I'm sitting down at my desk working right. and I and I brought that discipline I probably wrote when I wrote Hush Money. I probably worked I did work seven days a week, and I probably put in five hours to six hours a day every day writing that book. Right. Um, and uh, did that pay off? I think it did. Now, is there an element of luck involved? Of course there is. That, that book could easily have not sold, and I could easily have, have put it in the drawer. But, you know, I stayed with it. And by the way, that that, that brings me to another point, which is that the, the proliferation of uh, of self-publishing and in so-called independent publishing today one thing that I regret about that even though it's opened doors to a lot of writers who otherwise wouldn't have gotten their foot in the door I think there's a tendency now for young writers and new writers to write a book shop it it doesn't sell or they get some criticism and they say well the hell then I'm gonna self-publish it right? and that's what they do instead of saying well um, I better take it back to the garage and put it up on blocks and, and fix it Yes. Uh, and I put that this book on blocks and fixed it so many times to the point where, I, like I say, I cut about a quarter of it right. during the process, that at the end of the day, it was a much better product than it ever would have been if I had just said, oh, well, I'm discouraged, so I'm going to go self-publish it. Yeah. So that's a, a word of caution or a word of advice to, to, to other writers out there.
0: I agree. I mean, uh, it's, it's uh, language, uh, mastering it, uh, plot, mm. character. These these are aspects of a narrative that aren't easily mastered, especially for a long form, such as a novel. And uh, I agree, Uh, I'm amazed at how many people uh, are frustrated after one go or something, and you're like, really? You think you're gonna master this in, in, in this short amount of time? Yeah, so I agree. How did, you've talked about it a little bit, how did publishing your first book change the process? I mean, working with editors and agents, and, and, and what was that kind of journey, and, and the, the the highs and the lows?
1: Yeah, I had a good, very hands-on editor at St. Martin's, in, in and in Peter Joseph, uh, he, he he gave me feedback. I had a good agent who gave me feedback, so um, in those novels... Um, that was valuable to me.
0: And did uh, these make for rewrites, for the, the feedback, or are these adjustments? Yeah,
1: I, I, for Hush Money, for example, I, the ending of Hush Money, not the ending, ending but but the, the sort of climactic scene in which uh, there's a confrontation at the at the Fieldstone Riding Club where um, a shot is fired right. and, and a chase scene ensues, that scene was totally different than the first draft. I actually liked it better in the first draft between you and me. Right. It was slightly different, but I thought it was more clever, and my editor thought it was too clever by half, and that I should, I should rewrite it. Mm-hmm. So the version that you've read is the rewritten version. If I ever, if I ever republish that book, I may put the my my version back in there. Cause <laughs> I liked it better. But but so yeah, so so definitely I had input from uh, my editor on all the Jack books, that was valuable. The other the two books I did for Bloomsbury, they I'm not gonna say they weren't edited, but they really weren't. I, I, the book was acquired, and the, the editor was very hands-off. Um, I, I don't recall any suggestions he made to the manuscript. And then Tom and Lucky, he didn't make any suggestions. He just bought it as it was. and it didn't, He didn't ask for a single change. Wow. Now, whether that was represents indifference on his part or, or satisfaction on his part, I'm not sure. Let's
0: go with satisfaction. Yeah,
1: well, whatever. But uh, uh, there wasn't a lot of editorial input on either of those books. Put it that way.
0: And the last question of the day, I was lucky enough to see uh, Lee Child the other day, and he said he writes one a year, and so that's the question. He, he
1: writes one a year, and he starts on the anniversary of the day he was fired from his job. Exactly. I think that's, I think that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And,
0: and, and he said for him, from coming from a, a commercial TV world, uh, it seems a luxury to have a year to write. So, especially as you have two careers, my targets series you know and then the historical fiction uh, how do you juggle doing both and, and, and what are your goals because we talked a little bit about your work ethic
1: yeah you know I, I never wanted to be just one thing I never wanted to just do the, the mystery series and maybe in hindsight I should have just stuck, stuck with the mystery I don't know uh, I, I, I sort of aspire to to write uh, more literary fiction uh, which is my alter ego as C. Joseph Greaves. So th- the book I have coming out in September is called *Church of the Graveyard Saints*. It's very much uh, uh, upmarket commercial fiction slash literary fiction. It's it's a contemporary western uh, with elements of eco thriller in it and mm-hmm. and romance. So it's a departure for me. Third person, um, um, I suppose more similar to *Hard Twisted* in the sense that it's there's a lot more attention paid to the language in the novel. It's I think it's a well-written novel. I probably spent close to three years writing it, even though it's probably the shortest book I've written. So there's that. What does the future hold? I don't know. Uh, I'm writing a fourth Jack book now. We'll see if St. Martin's is interested in it. They have an option on it. We'll see. I like the way it's going. I think it might end up being the best of the four. We'll see. I uh, got a h- real high concept that I'm really excited about, which I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> uh, and uh, And we'll see what the future holds. I don't know. Um, This book, Church of the Graveyard Saints, really came about because I felt as though at this point in my life, I'm 63 years old now, I've got, this will be my sixth novel, uh, I wanted to be able to say that that I made an important statement about the issues of my time. I didn't want I wanted to use the platform that I had to to say something that was societally beneficial. So the book has a lot to do with um, uh, conservation, with the environment, with um, oil and gas development in this part of the country. And so I've, I've tried to make a statement with this book. We'll see how it's received.
0: That sounds exciting. Can't wait to read it. Well, good. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Chuck. I really appreciate giving you time and all this wonderful uh,
1: information. Thank you, Justin. I really appreciate it. Okay. Be a pay, be a tie, be a pay.